sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. The Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit Epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today. And by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at Norellis.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servan, a neurologist who practices at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. This is what's health got to do with it which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. Coming up, your monthly health headlines in 60 seconds. Then, it's our monthly medical roundtable. Later, what's in a name? How do you address your doctor or healthcare provider? But first, health headlines in 60 seconds from the past month. Flu hospitalizations have surged to a decade high in the United States, according to a report by CNBC. And it looks like the Southeast is the hardest hit region. The report cites data from the U.S. CDC, which showed that five out of every 100,000 people in the United States were hospitalized with the flu during the week ending on November 5th. It's the highest hospitalization rate this early in the flu season since 2010. On November 14th, the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Children's Hospital Association sent a letter to President Biden asking him to declare an emergency in response to this surge of pediatric respiratory illnesses like RSV and the flu, along with the ongoing children's mental health emergency. The Biden administration has not declared this a public health emergency. About 78% of pediatric beds are filled with patients with RSV, and seven states have reached 90% capacity. Americans once again adjusted to a changed schedule on Sunday, November 6th, when daylight savings time ended. Over the past year, 19 states joined a group aiming to make daylight savings permanent as soon as the federal government approves it. Arizona and Hawaii have already done so. The Sunshine Protection Act, which would make daylight savings permanent for the entire nation, is stalled in Congress. And that's your monthly medical health headlines in 60 seconds for November. Joining us today to delve deeper into some of these stories are Dr. Dacre Knight. He's a practicing internist and director of the Ehlers-Danlos Clinic and Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. Dr. Knight, welcome. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Great to have you back. Dr. Denise Milstein, she's a practicing internist and women's health specialist at Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona. Dr. Milstein, it's such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for including me. It's great to have you. And last but not least, we have Dr. Chad Nielsen. He is Director of Accreditation and Infection Prevention and an epidemiologist at the University of Florida Health Jacksonville. Chad, such a pleasure to have you join us. Thank you. It's great to have you here. Well, let's start with you, Chad, you know, we are in the throes of an unprecedented early flu season with high hospitalization rates. What's going on? Are, are you seeing these high flu rates in your hospital? Yeah, so unfortunately, yes, is the easy answer. Uh, the more complicated one is we're also seeing a high number of positive tests across all of our clinics and outpatient locations. Uh, in just the last two weeks here at UF Health Jacksonville, we've had over 290 positive flu tests across all of our hospitals and systems. And that doesn't include 
the four to five day stretch over Thanksgiving when many folks were not coming into the healthcare facility. So uh, that is translating to higher um, observation patients in our emergency department, as well as higher admissions across both of our major hospital campuses here in Jacksonville, Florida. Wow. Uh, Dr. Knight, why do you think this flu season is so high? Uh, when might it peak? Well, it, it is high. We we see that. And it seems like, unfortunately, we just can't ever catch a break. The last couple of flu seasons we got by, but we were dealing with COVID. And, and now that COVID has, has come down, then this is peaking back up. And I think that has something to do with it. it might be multiple reasons. But since we had been in lockdowns, we've been wearing masks, we've been distancing, doing all those things, I think flu was was taking backstage. But now that those have eased up, we're paying the price of it. But uh, fortunately, we do have flu vaccines and things like that are available. So uh, usually we see the peak come later in the winter, January, uh, but it is it is quite high already so early in the season. Got it. Dr. Milstein, uh, just as a reminder for folks, since we have so many illnesses floating around, what are the typical symptoms of flu? So typically when you have influenza, you feel achy and generally unwell. You'll often get a fever that might be accompanied by chills. Headache is really common. You can definitely get cough and congestion. But one thing I like to mention is often onset of influenza is sudden. When you get a cold, it Mm. usually has that lingering on-ramp, but flu, you feel like you got hit by a truck just immediately. That is uh, so helpful to know that because I always have trouble making those distinctions. Uh, Dr. Knight, is there a rapid test for flu like COVID? There are. There are rapid tests available. The rapid influenza uh, tests that are usually, you know, just like COVID, 15 minutes or less to take. Uh, they can be useful in, in short notice if needed. Uh, but also like those COVID rapid tests is that they do lack in sensitivity. So there, that means that some of those times when you think you have it and the test shows that it's negative, it may actually be the case that you do have it. It's just the test that is in error. So always talk to your doctor, I would say, if you, in those cases where you think you might still uh, be the situation. Uh, Chad, if you have the flu, what, what's the recommendation uh, for folks uh, in terms of managing it at home? Uh, what's the typical way that one would do that? Yeah, so I, I think first and foremost is try and avoid others who who are not sick. And uh, I know as a parent myself, <laughs> right. uh, and in a multi-person household, that can be very difficult. So uh, the CDC and, and as well as our hospital, we recommend people sort of create a sick room, uh, a room that you can go hang out in, have your comforts, and be sick in, uh, separated from the rest of your household. Uh, obviously, the the key to flu is symptom management, uh, managing fevers if they get too high with Tylenol or ibuprofen, drinking plenty of fluids. Uh, If in a child, you definitely want to monitor their intake and output, uh, other signs of respiratory distress, extreme fatigue or irritability uh, as they might uh, end up with a more severe case. Uh, Similarly, if you're immunocompromised, you want to manage the symptoms, but uh, your physician may choose to treat you with uh, Tamiflu or other antivirals, depending on how bad that case is for you. Dr. Milstein, talking about antivirals, uh, what when's the right time to use it? Uh, what, what, uh, what's the, uh, approach of when you should call to get that type of treatment and are there any side effects or things we have to worry about when using those? So there are antivirals available and there's a window where you could take it at the onset of symptoms when you have tested positive. I would encourage individuals to speak with their healthcare team to see if it's appropriate in their specific situation. We don't see a lot of side effects related to these medications. What we normally hear is how much better people feel when they've started on an antiviral after they've been diagnosed with influenza. Let's turn to another bug that is uh, making a lot of headlines, and that's RSV. RSV rates, which stands for respiratory synctial virus, are so high in kids that children's hospitals and the American Academy of Pediatrics is asking for help. But the Biden administration, as I already pointed out in my intro, opted instead to offer federal assistance on a state-by-state basis. Chad, 
introduce us all to the RSV virus. Yeah, so RSV uh, or respiratory syncytial virus uh, is a common cold-like illness uh, that occurs in most individuals of any age. Symptoms include most of the usual cold symptoms, so runny nose, congestion, coughing, sneezing, fever, uh, some respiratory wheezing, uh, but typically it lasts a week or two weeks and doesn't require hospitalization for most individuals. However, as we're seeing now with this greater um, uh, presence of it now in the nation, it can be extremely dangerous for children, particularly kids uh, less than one years old. Uh, and that's because these children typically don't have mature immune systems and their respiratory systems aren't fully mature. And that's what RSV really attacks is those respiratory systems on these little ones. So uh, we're also seeing an increase in severe cases amongst individuals who are 65 years and older, again, because of uh, aging immune systems and lack of protection. So um, we haven't seen these numbers in, in quite some time, and it's likely due to uh, the, the COVID pandemic sort of muting people's exposure to it. Dr. Milstein, uh, in general, is RSV something that's somewhat common, like the flu, and and because we just went through it, COVID? Well, historically, RSV is incredibly common in children and pediatric patients. I've seen there have been over 2 million doctor's visits in the U.S. annually for young children with RSV in the wow. last several years. What's tricky is we don't really know how many adults have RSV because typically we're not being tested for RSV when we come down with a cold. So I would say it's a safe bet to believe RSV is incredibly common. Dr. Knight, uh, how easily does this spread? Well, it spreads too easy, really, and and that's part of the reason why it is so rampant right now, and and especially this time of year. So we usually see the seasonal fluctuations, but as a upper respiratory infection it's spreading by droplets, similar to what we saw with COVID, is that those droplets, close contact, sneezing, coughing, things like that. Uh, so just in in, in proximity. Uh, so, yes, ultimately, it does spread quite easily uh, if you're around those that are in infected. So uh, that's part of the reason why it looks like uh, that we are already at such a high level at this point in the season compared to what it's, we've seen in past seasons altogether. Chad, uh, we we are talking so much about RSV and kids, and, and we've all kind of mentioned this when it comes to adults, but is it? Only the very young kids, what age are we talking about? And uh, I know that this was brought up a moment ago, but what about adults? Uh, we, we just don't hear about them other than when it was mentioned about older aged adults. Yeah, so I, I think across the spectrum, really any age uh, person can get RSV. It's just more... Uh, it has a more propensity to be severe in those young children and in those who are immunocompromised or over 65. So right now it's quite easily for adults to catch RSV and think really nothing of it because more than likely uh, most adults have had RSV in their lifetime and they have some kind of residual immunity for it. So their body knows how to fight it well. That's why it's very important for little kids to be protected uh, and put away from it because uh, they haven't seen it before. And so uh, most individuals will overcome RSV with little issue, without hospitalization or without any uh, severe illness. But uh, on the extreme ends of age, uh, we will see those severe cases, unfortunately. Dr. Knight, if you get this, if you get RSV, uh, are you immune? Uh, are there treatments? Uh, is, is there anything conferred by getting it? Yeah, there, there's got to be a, some good side to this, right? Yes. Yeah, so if you do have and, and have and recover from RSV, it does look like you do have some temporal immunity. Now, that may hopefully last through that season, but it's not necessary that it will last through the following season. Uh, so as far as treatments go, you're asking, yes, there are antibody treatments that are available for those that are the highest risk. So we're talking about age ranges. So certainly the youngest infants uh, would be at higher risk uh, for these. So they might meet the criteria for receiving some of the antibody treatments. Uh, no vaccines yet, uh, but as I understand that there are some that are in study with Pfizer right now. So we can be hopeful for that. Dr. Milstein, uh, why do you think the numbers are so high this particular year? 
Well, we haven't been exposing each other as much over the last two seasons with all the social isolate with all the social isolation, masking, the better hand washing, all important things which reduced the spread of COVID. We also reduced transmission of other viruses. And so many people just have not yet been exposed to RSV. And I think we're now getting exposed for the first time and maybe getting sicker because of that. To all of our listeners, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servin. If you're just joining us, it's our monthly medical roundtable, and we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tweet me at jservin. Chad, we have just gone through Thanksgiving, and I'm hoping everyone had an incredible one, but germane to this show and to you, what you work you do. What about COVID? I'd be remiss if I did not bring up COVID on a monthly medical roundtable. What are the numbers looking like post-Thanksgiving? Are we looking at the triple-demic that we had discussed previously? Yeah, so as we've seen throughout this pandemic, COVID is extremely regional in the case numbers. Uh, there are several parts of the world that are undergoing, in fact, some of their worst outbreaks, like in China right now, Omicron is running rampant across uh, most of the large cities there. Here in the United States, we are still seeing continual transmission of COVID-19. Here in the state of Florida alone, we're averaging somewhere between 12 and 14,000 new cases of COVID uh, every single week. And so depending on where you're living, you're seeing more or less levels of COVID, but it is still around and it is still unfortunately hospitalizing some people. Chad, on on yet another infection, and I bring this up uh, just simply by looking at the calendar, uh, December 1st will mark World AIDS Day. Uh, Out of curiosity, uh, where are we with cases or prevention? What's going on with that at this time uh, with regards to AIDS? Uh, So unfortunately, much of the focus uh, for public health was taken off of the HIV pandemic uh, over the last several years because of COVID. We had to shift resources due to this this acute rising of COVID viral uh, cases. So uh, what we're seeing, though, in HIV is cases have been rising in many parts of the world, including here in the United States over the last two years. In fact, right here in Florida, we've seen nearly a 40% increase in new HIV cases in just the last couple of years alone. Uh, So this year's World AIDS Day really is being used to refocus attention on HIV, which continues to be a a huge source of mortality uh, here in the United States and across the world. Let me go to a very different topic and talk about daylight savings. We know that daylight savings ended on November 6th, uh, roughly a month ago. Uh, Many Americans are tired of this biannual ritual. According to a 2022 Monmouth University study, six out of 10 Americans want to stop fooling with the clock. But a law to stop daylight savings has rare overwhelming bipartisan support is stalled in Congress because legislators don't know what to do. Dr. Knight, do you foresee the U.S. following the lead of Arizona and Hawaii in abolishing this? Well, I should say, I I did see that Monmouth University study too, and it was interesting and and really quite astounding that that the majority uh, are in favor of this. And so I'm just relying on that data and and maybe more to come. I could expect that this is what we would eventually see is that we are uh, eventually getting to the point of getting rid of daylight savings time. Um, and I think my wife, if anyone would be in favor of that, she'll stop hearing me gripe about it. But uh, I, yeah, I would expect that that's probably going to be the case. Do you think that there are health impacts from abolishing daylight savings time? I guess my question is, what's the harm if they were to get rid of it? Well, that's a very important question because I think that we are becoming more health conscious with time. We're more aware of bases for disease and things. And there is a, there is definitely an impact to your health when you change your circadian rhythm for whatever reason, whether it's jet lag or it's just daylight savings time. 
And the impact is that it could be disruptive your sleep, most importantly. Uh, circadian rhythms are very finely tuned for some people, especially if you have chronic medical conditions, heart disease, other things uh, that, you know, obstructive sleep apnea, all those things where, or even if, not to mention insomnia, where your circadian rhythm is so important that it is kind of finely in tune with what you're doing on a daily schedule. You talk to sleep medicine doctors, they'll talk to you about how important it is that you're going to bed at the same time every night, waking up the same time every day, and it's important to get full uh, restful sleep that is restorative. And so if we're disrupting it, I mean, for really whatever reason, you know, I, I, I don't know that there is any good reason at this point, uh, then, and it's having health impact. And I know some of the other studies that are looking into this further too, do see that uh, certain groups are impacted more. So blacks and Hispanics and, and those that where we see some health disparities already that are Im impacted by this. So uh, having some more balance to our circadian rhythm, anything we can do to that end, I think would be helpful to our health. I have to point out, I know, Dr. Milstein, you're in Arizona. I'm sure that this debate uh, is literally not even germane to you. We are so glad to not have to change the clock, so it's not a common topic of conversation. <laughs> Fair enough. Let's switch to yet another topic. Uh, Preterm births last year reached their highest peak since 2007, with more than 383,000 born before 37 weeks of gestational age in the U.S., according to a new report. In 2021, roughly 10.5% of U.S. babies were born premature, according to the annual March of Dimes report card, which rated the United States at D+. That's D as in dog. D plus, almost failing. The score dropped from its C minus rating in 2020 when the preterm birth rate saw its first decline in six years, a slight decrease to 10.1%. The report released found disparities widened between white mothers and native and black mothers who are already 60 times percent more likely to have a preterm birth and nearly three times as likely as white moms to die of childbirth-related causes. In 2021, black mothers saw a 3% increase and Native American mothers a 6% increase in preterm births, according to the analysis. Dr. Milstein, what is preterm labor so that our listeners fully understand the concept? I think this can actually be a little tricky for pregnant people to recognize. Many women will have contractions prior to going into labor. These are often called Braxton Hicks contractions. They come and they go. They might be worse if you get dehydrated. But when those contractions become regular and they start to cause opening of the cervix before 37 weeks of gestation, then this is considered preterm labor and must be discussed with their OBGYN team. What causes preterm labor? Do, do we know? So there are several causes for preterm labor. The most concerning are going to be problems with the placenta or with the uterus, such as an infection, which is why it's so critically important that the contractions be evaluated by the healthcare team. Women who smoke or women who have high blood pressure, or diabetes, or some other chronic medical conditions are going to be at higher risk for preterm labor, as well as women who are carrying multiple pregnancies. So when they're pregnant with twins or triplets, they are at higher risk. So why do you think we're seeing these changes? Uh, do, do people know what the underlying reason why now, uh, that we would see basically a, a big change like this? I really think this is multifactorial. One of the biggest reasons is access to care, access to prenatal care, meaning that you are followed from the time that either before you become pregnant or soon after you become pregnant to make sure that those risk factors are being monitored, like your blood pressure or your blood sugar before they become more serious or more severe. If those aren't being monitored, then they're going to present as things like preterm labor or pregnancy 
complications. I think another consideration is whether women are under more stress recently and how they're coping with that. Are they smoking more, drinking more, exercising less? And then, of course, there's COVID. Exposure to COVID infection might also have something to do with it. One more question on this. Uh, what do you think is the reason we see the numbers so remarkably skewing against uh, races or ethnicities uh, where it's really kind of promulgating disparities? Why, why are we seeing that? You know, this is something the healthcare system really has to take on. As I've mentioned, stress is incredibly important when it comes to being at risk for preterm labor. And the truth is women of color are at higher exposure to stress. But one caution for our listeners is that we don't want to look at this as a marker for poverty or poor access to care. Women of color who are higher resourced and have higher access to care still have worse outcomes compared to Caucasian women. So we have to figure out why this is happening and how the system can be adjusted to manage it. Such important advice and, and a reminder for all of those who deal with the health system. This is a, this is a top issue. Mr. Postman. It's time to open our social media mailbag. Our director, Isabella De Silva, is here with questions from our listeners for our experts. Isabella, what do we have? Erica from Boston. If your child gets RSV, are they more prone to other infections or asthma as an older child or adult? Chad, can you answer Erica? That's a, I, I've never thought about that, but it's an interesting question. Yeah, so there is some epidemiological data suggesting this, yes. Uh, although the pathology of it is still under investigation, the research does suggest that kids who are infected with RSV as infants or toddlers do tend to have higher risk of asthma and allergies as they continue to age. Uh, I think that's why it's so important for parents to seek medical attention when RSV is suspected in small children. And uh, I also think it's really good news that we're hearing about a, a potential for a successful RSV vaccine uh, coming through the, the clinical trial pipeline right now. Isabella, what else is in there? Leo from Chicago. I have a random medical question. Every time I go to see my doctor, my blood pressure is high. Yet my blood pressure seems to be high only when I see my doctor. How do doctors diagnose hypertension versus what I think is white coat syndrome? This is a fascinating question. Uh, uh, for full disclosure, I, I know exactly what Leo is talking about from Chicago. Dr. Milstein, can you help answer this question from Leo? It's a great one. It is a great one, and it's far from random because it is incredibly common. The straightforward answer to his question is that it's a good idea to be checking your blood pressure in various settings, including at home. But really, the more important question to be asking is whether or not it matters. What we know is that white coat hypertension is also associated with outcomes such as heart attacks and stroke. So even if you only have what's called white coat hypertension, it's still possible that you would benefit from treatment. Great answer. What else do we have, Isabella? Hector from Sacramento. Every time I see my doctor, I am asked about fatigue in all of the pre-visit questionnaires. My question is, what is normal fatigue from the stress of everyday life versus fatigue as a symptom of a disease? Can you tell the difference? Another full disclosure, I always wonder that as well, because anytime I see a patient, everyone says yes to fatigue. Dr. Knight, can you help clarify this for myself and for Hector? Sure, I'll be glad to. And and I can totally sympathize with these questionnaires. They just seem like they go on forever. And I think sometimes they might even induce fatigue, right? Right. They're just sitting there <laughs> filling them out on and on. And, and But it, it is a very important question because, as you mentioned, we, we see this very often in, in the medical setting. Uh, and fatigue can be a sign of some underlying disease. And, and certainly it is worth investigating. Now, to know what's normal versus abnormal, there's lots of different complex layers to this. So um, 
the best, you know, to leave it. And, you know, obviously knowing yourself and what your activity levels are like, if you're very stressful, you know, working a stressful job and you know, juggling multiple activities, then there's good reason for you having fatigue. It may not be a medical issue. Uh, but uh, considering your circumstances and working closely with your primary doctor, who hopefully knows your background and social history and things like that, then they might be able to help guide you and to help decide, is this something that needs to be investigated? Do we need to start doing some lab work and, and further investigation to see if there could be something driving it? So it's really hard to say just on a, a blanket statement that there is some way you can look between what's normal versus abnormal fatigue. But think about it for yourself. What you know, what type of activities you're, what kind of, we're talking about daylight savings time and circadian rhythms. What What is your quality of sleep like? And all of those things that can go into fatigue because fatigue can come from so many different areas. Isabella, what else do we have? Jorge is an intern in New York City. There was endless discussion and health headlines about monkeypox in the late summer and early fall. Now, no one talks about it. My question is, what happened to monkeypox? Chad, what happened to monkeypox? That was the the talk of uh, of this show for for several episodes. But but Jorge's right. Uh, no one's talking about it. What happened? Yeah, so it's a good question. Uh, monkeypox is still transmitting across the U.S. in different parts of the world, but largely the outbreak is under control at this point. Weekly cases of monkeypox in the U.S. have been steadily decreasing since the peak in cases uh, sometime in late July, early August. Uh, the efforts by public health agencies, hospitals, and just healthcare providers in general uh, to, to educate and warn about the virus has really worked to raise awareness. And thus, higher awareness means at-risk individuals adjusted their behavior and stopped the transmission cycles. So it's still out there, but if you look at the graphs, you'll see a very, uh, a very classic textbook-looking uh, graph that we call the epidemiology curve of monkeypox. It started, it made a nice little bell curve, and now it's tailing off. So I think at this point, it's largely behind most of us here in the U.S. So Chad, if I understand you right, is that basically saying that this is this is almost what the predicted course of this was likely to be? Yeah, absolutely. When public health and, and different health agencies are able and have the resources to do the work they need to recognize, stop, and, and further prevent outbreaks, that's exactly what we get. We get a very classic epidemiology curve that just so happened to work on a big national level here in the U.S., much like it worked in Europe. I will say Europe was much uh, much more ahead of the U.S. in terms of handling monkeypox outbreak, uh, but we did catch up here in the U.S. Our, uh, resources in terms of our ability to stop this, and uh, it it worked uh, its way through the U.S. and we we ended it from a public health perspective uh, with extreme uh, speed. Got it, Isabella. What else do we have? Jennifer from Austin. Can your experts explain the difference between Medicare versus a Medicare Advantage plan? What is the difference? Dr. Milstein, this is a more health system question, but you want to take a crack at that? So Medicare is the original coverage, and that is something that those eligible for it can use across the country, anywhere that accepts Medicare. Uh, they can travel to see their relatives, and if they need to go to the hospital, they can use Medicare to be seen. Medicare Advantage is a form of bringing the insurance together so that you have a more limited network that is better covered for you. So if you're choosing Medicare Advantage, you're actually choosing into a covered network. I'm sure there are many other right. differences between the two, but those are going to be your big ones. Just as a follow-up, so that means when you say a covered network like, uh, like uh, an HMO, is, is that what you mean? It is pretty close to what we used to see with the HMOs uh, back in the 90s. I appreciate that. We're going to let that be our last word. I want to thank uh, the three of you all for just all the wisdom that you've shared on so many different topics. Uh, thank you so much uh, to you, Chad Nielsen, uh, to you, Dr. Milstein, and to you, Dr. Knight, uh, for all of this great information. 
Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, happy to. Thanks. It, it, it has been a pleasure. We've been talking to Dr. Dacre Knight, a practicing internist and director of the Ehlers-Danlos Clinic at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. Dr. Denise Milstein, a practicing internist and women's health specialist at Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona. And Dr. Chad Nielsen, he's director of accreditation and infection prevention and epidemiologist at the University of Health, Jacksonville. And up next, what do you call your doctor? Our next guest helps us to avoid awkward moments. We'll be right back. Did you know that many people end up in the ER because of Christmas tree-related injuries or illnesses? A 2019 study published in Advances in Integrative Medicine found that nearly 23,000 people were estimated to have been injured by Christmas trees or stands. Moreover, a 2011 study published in the Annals of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology found that 53 different kinds of mold were present on 28 samples of Christmas trees, 70% of which were potentially harmful and could trigger an allergic reaction, like sneezing, wheezing, and coughing. If someone in your household gets sick around the tree, it might be time to go artificial. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and this is What's Health Got to Do With It? Let me ask you a question. What do you call your doctor? Do you use their first name? Okay, I'll admit it. It really gets on my nerves when I'm addressed by my first name by patients. I'm not talking about Dr. Joe, which works for me. But calling me Joseph or Joe is the equivalent of nails on chalkboard. Not even my son calls me that. I believe that my first name works for personal friends and family. And although I'm comfortable being friendly with my patients, my relationship is first and foremost a professional and business one, and that title reminds us of this. But not everyone agrees with me. And who gets addressed by their first name varies by gender and specialty. Our next guest authored a paper on this topic that was recently published on the topic in the journal JAMA Open. Dr. Yul Yang, a practicing dermatologist at Mayo Clinic in Arizona, joins us now from Scottsdale, Arizona, to discuss the topic. Dr. Yang, welcome to our show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I, let's get this up front. Do you like being addressed as Dr. Yang or by your first name, Yule? So personally, I view my, my primary job at Mayo Clinic is to take care of patients. For that reason, I'm not personally offended by being addressed by almost anything. So in my practice, <laughs> I've been called by my first name. I've been called Dr. Yang. Various similar sounding names also, Dr. Wang, Dr. Chang. And honestly, I'm not personally offended because in my view, patients rarely mean any harm in doing in what they call me. I have to ask this. You have an unusual first name, Yule. Uh, how did you get that name? So my parents named me Yule because um, they I was named after an older American actor, uh, Yul Brenner. My parents thought that that would work as both a Korean and English name, thinking that it would fit in both worlds. And it turns out that um, it's not a typical Korean name. No. And it also isn't a typical <laughs> English name either. So it, it kind of 
doesn't either. But uh, I, that's why I'm named Yule. Uh, and 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 I'm I'm even kind of trying to like I, as I, it tells you something about me when I recognize that actor, but I'm it's not about me today. So we'll move on to the to our to other question. What led you to to do this study? What gave you the idea? So the study was inspired by our first author, Jameson Harvey, who was a resident and is now currently a practicing dermatologist in Phoenix. So she knows she was more frequently called by first name more than others by patients, by colleagues, just by email. And so that inspired her to actually say, we should think about this. And so that's why we started the study. So how did you go about conducting the study? I understand you looked at at the electronic medical records message emails. So in this study, we reviewed patient messages sent to physicians from October 2018 to September 2021, and then used something called natural language processing to see how patients were addressed. So in a simple explanation, natural language processing simply looks for word choices within a certain rules. And here, the rules were simply when patients address physicians as doctor or just by first name. So in doing this, we looked at over 90,000 messages and we identified over 15,000 relationships between patients and physicians. So what were the general findings based on those 90,000 messages? So overall, first name greetings was around 8.4% of these relationships, but we were somewhat surprised to find that women physicians were more than twice the odds as men to be called by first name. And doctor of osteopathic medicine had almost twice the odds. And primary care physicians had approximately 50% greater odds to also be called by first name. That, that, that is fascinating. Uh, but let's delve into that. Uh, did the age of the doctor or patient impact the results? So if you're an older doctor or older patient, you're more likely to be more uh, professional about it? So we thought the same thing too, because, you know, there's this age and experience difference and perception of that, as well as comfort with technology based on age as well. So we wondered whether or not this would hold true, but our study didn't find any differences based on patient or physician age, or even whether the physician was in training. What about ethnicity or race? Did that have any role in any of this? Uh, we didn't examine this question in this initial study, but we're working on this right now. Uh, did what a patient called a doctor impact the care the patient received? Uh, it, could you tell? We actually didn't ascertain anything about um, the future outcomes on whether there were either clinical benefits or any sort of response differences, but that's also in, in our future studies as well. So uh, ultimately, what what's the big conclusion that you take away uh, from these results? I, I have to admit, they're fascinating to me. It's, I, I'm not surprised, sadly, about uh, the women being uh, more likely to be addressed by first name. But what do you believe are the big conclusions? So overall, what we found is there's a pattern of addressing physicians differently based on gender, degree, and specialty. And this is something a lot of physicians do sort of note in their practice. Um, But here we are actually able to objectively measure that by examining patient messaging. So why is it that you think a primary care physician is likely to be called by their first name as opposed to a specialist? This is actually a good question. So there there can be differences between specialties and relationships between physicians and their patients. Um, For example, well, they talk about every specialty has their own sort of what they do, how they interact with patients. Um, And so for that reason, it may reflect either primary care physicians may request it, or it it may reflect that they have a closer relationship with their patients long term. So it's hard exactly to know why that occurs, but um, just something we could objectively measure. Now, tell me, why do you think this issue is important? I find it fascinating. It got my attention. But what about the healthcare system or healthcare encounters do you think that this helps to illuminate? So ultimately what we do in medicine is to communicate between a patient who wants care 
and a physician who's trying to offer their expertise. And our viewpoint is just better understanding this dynamic may help both sides. The problem in general in sort of observing and examining this dynamic though, is it's hard to objectively measure a private interaction between two people, especially in the healthcare setting, mostly because not only is there sort of privacy issues going on there, but the moment you start observing recording a, a person, it sort of impacts sort of how they behave. So we think messaging offers this unique insight into real patient-physician dynamics. Um, and that's why we think that more sort of examination of these patient messaging in the future would be helpful to, under, to help sort of help communication between both sides. What do you think about the reverse? I know that the study didn't look at this, but I, about your just general vibe, uh, what about how doctors address patients? I know when I go to meet someone. In fact, when I was seeing patients just this morning, the first question I always ask when I pronounce their name and greet them is like, how do you wish for me to address you? Um, and that way I'm either given permission to use their first name or it's Mr. or Mrs. or whatever uh, other way they wish to be referred to. But what do you think about the reverse? So personally, I think it's a very interesting subject um, from both the view of patients and physicians. So in my practice, I actually only address my pediatric patients by first name. Um, it's sort of the way I was trained, but more so it also helps when you have many patients with similar first names, it sort of helps distinguish who everybody is. But as a physician, I think the choice may be individual sort of based on the, your specialty, your patients, and your personal style on how you approach people. Um, but I think it's a future, in the future, be very interesting to see how patients prefer to be addressed as well. Are you planning to look at nurses? Uh, and you, you brought this up, and even uh, the doctors of osteopaths, which I didn't even foresee as being different. Um, I, I don't think we're right now, we're not currently looking into that as much. It's a little harder with nurses just because most addresses are straight, sent straight usually to physicians. So, um, just from a, from a calculating standpoint, it ends up being harder through our electronic medical record. Um, but it's something I think we could look into at some point. And, and do you just on your, from your opinion, uh, what about other healthcare providers like physical therapists? I, there's not there's not a a simple doctor so and so or uh, any other title. Um, do you do you get a sense of like whether they like being called by their first name versus another name? I think it's actually perhaps more more pertinent actually to address nurse practitioners and physician assistants. Um, the our advanced practice providers they do provide um, a lot of care to patients. Um, and I think seeing how that, that area of how people address each other might be very interesting, actually. Now, where do you see all of this heading in the future? Uh, will it be more common to just use first names because society as a whole is so less formal now due to email and, and, and I won't even go down the road of social media where there's no addressing anybody uh, other than just putting a comment out there. It's really hard to say because back in the day you could say, you know, doctors were always called doctor this, doctor that, but even some institutions, doctors refer to each other by first name. Some places they encourage first name basis perhaps um to for i guess less formality the question is is what is the utility of this formality though in society in general um and the complication there happens in that in some areas of medicine that maybe that formality is more needed for example you could imagine a busy surgeon operating in the or it's very clear that someone needs to be in charge well calling someone that in that setting doctor is that different than calling them by first name um, versus let's say in a different field dermatology for example let's say you want you know someone very well over the course of years will having the the loosening of formality increase patient compliance and also increase communication i think that's a great topic i think to view on a society in general now, uh, with regards to the methods in uh, the study, I, I know that you uh, were able to review this 
huge number of emails uh, within the electronic medical record. Um, was that uh, where did in just conducting that type of work? How did you navigate around issues uh, such as HIPAA or things of that sort? Great question. So um, in this, everyone's the data sort of is run through a computer through this natural language processing algorithm. In this, while the patients are essentially de-identified, so we don't actually know the names of the names of the patients. Um, we do know the, the physicians and their titles, but also everything ends up de-identified. And it's also when it's reported, it's further de-identified as well. So for that reason, um, we're able to get around this by, by having the data analyzed, I guess, with knowing what things are. But finally, the final result is, uh, I guess, is private. Dr. Yang, I just want to thank you so much for sharing uh, this study with us. Uh, it has been very illuminating, fascinating, and we just appreciate your time. I'm glad to be here um, and happy to answer the questions. Uh, we appreciate it. We've been talking to Dr. Yul Yang, a practicing dermatologist at Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona, and first author of a paper on a topic looking at how patients address their doctors in electronic medical records. Well, that's our program for today. We hope you've enjoyed our show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Luckin. Heather Schatz is our senior producer. Our producer is Brendan Rivers. Isabella Da Silva is our director. Gary Autry is our intern. Next week's program is a special conversation on a hospital at home concept. If you have questions about this or any topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362, email us at health at wjct.org, or tweet me at jservin. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening and stay in touch. Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at American Brain Foundation and by the Epilepsy Foundation leads the fight to overcome the challenges of living with epilepsy and to accelerate therapies, stop seizures, find cures, and save lives. Visit epilepsy.com to find out how to get involved today.